Okay, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles with you, if you can turn to Genesis 39. Uh, just while you're finding your way there, just want to share a little bit about uh, a TV program that's becoming a firm favourite in our household. Uh, and that program is The Secret Life of Five-Year-Olds. I don't know if anyone here has seen it. But the premise of the show is that they've got a, a group of, of five-year-olds from uh, different places across the country, from different cultures and backgrounds, and they put them all in this nursery. They have cameras put up everywhere uh, and psychologists that are watching what's going on. And the idea is that they want to understand how children learn, how they develop, how they grow, how they handle conflict, how they handle friendships and that kind of thing. It is probably one of the funniest things uh, that I've seen for a very long time because children honestly come out with some amazingly witty things. And this, this one uh, particular episode, they were looking... Um, well, it was one of, one of the, the girls' birthdays, and they'd had uh, this chocolate cake made for her. I've got people to see people smiling already, I think they saw this one. And uh, they put this birthday cake out, and they said to the children, they said, this cake is for the end of the day, you're not allowed to touch it. And they just left this cake out. It, uh, it was in the middle of the garden, I think it was. The girls did really well. Uh, they left the cake alone. One little girl was fairly tempted until someone else told her to stop looking at it and she cleared off and left it. But the boys, they did not do well at all. <laughs> they didn't. Uh, there was this little boy called Alfie and he stood over the cake. He looked at the cake. He smelt the cake. And then all of a sudden you hear one little boy screaming, Oh no, he's eating it! <laughs> to which Alfie replied, No, I just took a lick, that's all. <laughs> And then you could hear one of the psychologists who was watching on the screen, he laughed and he said, well, that's how it starts though, mate. <laughs> that was the beginning of the end. By the end of the experiment, the top of the cake was covered with fingerprints and saliva. It looked absolutely gross. It was an absolutely perfect demonstration of how not to handle temptation. Right there and then. But in total contrast this morning, as we continue our series looking at the life of Joseph, as I was looking at this passage, what I got out of it, what I could see, is that we see that Joseph is an excellent example of how to handle temptation, of how temptation should be dealt with, but also of how sin should be understood. So the series uh, that we're carrying on with this morning, we've called Joseph, God's Diverted Dreamer. We're coming from uh, the understanding of how sometimes in life, situations can, can change, things will happen that will take our life off of some, in kind of a diversion from the way that we thought or hoped, maybe even a planned, that it would be. And we're looking at Joseph because this is a young man who is just hit by diversion after diversion, trial after trial, and yet he handles himself so well. So we want to look at the life of Joseph uh, as he serves as an example for us of how we handle ourselves and how we navigate our way through when life seems to take these diversions. The first week, uh, the title for the sermon was Dreams. Joseph was a young man, he was 17. His father was Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph, very clearly, the favourite son. He was the favourite son, but he was the most hated brother. His brothers did not like him one bit. But this was a young man who God came to in some dreams, and God revealed something of his plans and purposes for Joseph. And in both of these dreams, uh, it had his family bowing down, to him, this sense that at some point in the future, Joseph was going to be in a position of authority over his family. This was what God had planned for him and God had shown 
to him. And Joseph was very quick in going to tell his brothers exactly what God has showed him. Uh, all it did uh, was upset his brothers even more. And they decided that they'd had enough of him, that they, that they wanted uh, to kill him. And that's what Mike was looking at last week. The title of last week was Double Crossed, how Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. What, hap- what happened in the end was that they ended up throwing him in a pit and then selling him to some people that were travelling past. Went back to their father Jacob and explained how Joseph had been eaten by a wild animal. So at this point, Jacob thinks his son is dead. The reality is he'd been sold into slavery in Egypt, serving in the house of a guy called Potiphar, who is in a position of real responsibility and authority in Egypt. But we're told, and as Mike shared with us last week, even in the midst of this huge diversion that his life had taken, the Lord was with Joseph. And actually, God caused him to be successful in what he was doing. And he found uh, that he was very well thought of and very well respected in everything that he did. And Potiphar thought so very highly of him. He left everything under his control without feeling the need to constantly be checking up on him. And that leads us into this week. And the title for this week, as Mike pointed out last week, following on with titles beginning with D, is Discipline. Joseph was, di- was disciplined, even in the midst of these massive diversions that his life had taken, he was disciplined. So let's uh, pick up from verse 6 of chapter 39. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house uh, was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But... The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favour in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So we're told that Joseph... He was a good-looking young man. He was very easy on the eye. And uh, Potiphar's wife, she takes a bit of a fancy to Joseph. And let's 
Say it as it is, in no uncertain terms, she lets Joseph know exactly how she feels and exactly what she wants from him. It's important for us to remember at this point, Joseph is a young man. He's probably 17, maybe 18 years of age at this point. He's got the normal temptations of a young man. He's a long way from home. He's in a foreign land. Life is not necessarily going the way that he had hoped or expected. His life has taken a huge detour, having been betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery when God had revealed to him these dreams about the future that he had for him. We need to be thinking, actually, how might Joseph have been feeling at this point? How vulnerable might he have been? Now, Joseph was in service to Potiphar uh, for probably between 10, 11 years in total. We're not told at what point in the story this, this happens when she first approaches Joseph. But he was there for a long time. It could have really have been, been anywhere. But what we do know is that the invitation kept on coming day after day. This temptation was persistent. It was constant. It was never letting up. And here's the thing. This shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us that temptation works like that. Mike started this morning by getting us to recite the Lord's Prayer. I didn't realise he was going to do that. But the last bit that we read, and this is actually something we, we didn't touch on when we were looking at the Lord's Prayer in the last series we were doing. So it's good that we've got the opportunity to look at it today. The last thing we read was, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What we're saying when we're praying that, as Jesus commands his followers to pray that, is we're saying, Lord, spare us from situations and circumstances that would tempt us into sin, from those situations that would lead us into sin. And when we're talking about sin, we're talking about anything that violates the relationship between us and God, the things that would, uh, um, would bring conflict in, into that relationship, sin being disobedience to the will of God, doing things against the way that we understand and we know that God would have us want to live. And so actually, in Jesus asking his followers to, to, to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but, but deliver us from evil. It's a recognition that just as it was for Joseph, it's a daily battle that all of us face. It's a daily battle that we face. And, but we're to recognise it for what it is. We're not ignorant of it. We recognise it that we're in a battle. That there will be temptation that comes our way. Something that will try and lead us into sin. Lead us to be disobedient to the will of God. But we recognise it for what it is and we take action against it. Sometimes I think it can be very easy to spot uh, the sin in other people, to spot what other people do very wrong and to think, do you know what, I'd never do that. That would never be something that I would do. Oh, I'd never fall into the trap that they just fell into. But Jesus calls all of us to pray daily because all of us are just as vulnerable all of us should expect that temptation is going to come our way. To think that it only ever happens to other people is completely ignorant and actually is a very dangerous position to stand on in our lives and a very dangerous attitude to have. Remember, Jesus calls us to pray daily. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The best protection from sin, the best protection from temptation is to turn to God. It's to depend on his leading and it's to depend on his direction Lord lead us not into temptation show me the way actually to avoid it keep me from it going back to our chocolate cake 
and, uh, and our five-year-olds. The psychologist gives a really insightful, uh, um, he just shares something that's hugely insightful. He says that in that sort of temptation, what you really need to do is to get away from the source of temptation. And some of the boys did just that. What Alfie did was the worst thing possible, which is to sit himself over the cake and to smell it and to look at it. Alfie did the worst thing possible. Do you know what? As we observe Joseph, we see he did not sit, he did not look. What we're told is that he did not listen. Day after day, he did not listen to her. He didn't accept her advances. He was resolute. He was determined. Day after day, in the face of persistent temptation, with this open invitation that this woman has clearly given to him, he made a decision not to listen. Self-controlled, he was disciplined, he maintained his integrity. He did not entertain her words, he didn't allow himself to think on them, he didn't allow them to linger. Do you know what? Temptation does that. When it gets you to think about it and to ponder on it and to linger on it, and it just grows and grows and grows. What what, what we're told that Joseph did, he did not listen. He didn't even give it a chance to register in his mind, to allow himself to think about it, to ponder on it, not to think, oh, actually, do you know what, if I were to accept the invitation, I wonder kind of what the consequences of it would be. I wonder what it would be like. He doesn't do that. He just doesn't listen to her. He does not accept her invitation. This is a young man who is disciplined and resolute to the utmost, utterly. And this is an example that we should look up to because he handles himself so, so well. But then one day, listening is no longer, uh, sorry, not listening is no longer an option for Joseph. Now, Potiphar's wife, she's, she doesn't appear to be one for subtlety at all. Uh, and then when there's no one else around, she literally grabs hold of him. She stops Uh, giving him an invitation and she literally grabs hold of him to to just say I'm not listening to you was not an option that wouldn't have been any help to Joseph in that situation situation so what does he do he runs the word that uh, in the translation that I read was he fled he flees he gets out of there as quickly as he can this word flee uh, and fleeing comes up uh, often in the scriptures and often when talking about temptation and often when talking about sin 2 Timothy 2 22 flee youthful passions 1 Corinthians 6 18 flee from sexual immorality 1 Corinthians 10 14 flee from idolatry it's this constant theme that comes up throughout scripture flee run away to flee means to, to run away, to go with, with haste, especially because of danger. It's something that is urgent. It requires immediate action. There's no time to sit around and think about what you're going to do. It's just get out of there because you are, in, you are in danger and you need to respond. And you need to respond by just getting yourself out of there as quickly as you can. Joseph does whatever it takes to resist that temptation, to resist the advance of Potiphar's wife, whatever it takes, regardless of the consequence, which we'll find out about in, uh, in just a moment. He's not thinking about that at that point. He just gets himself out of there, out of the line of temptation, as quickly as he can. For us, temptation and sin work in exactly the same way for us as it did for Joseph. Nothing has changed. 
And it may mean that we need to, well, we definitely need to be uh, disciplined and resolute and self-controlled and <coughs> determined not to give in to temptation. But there will, be there will be situations as well where we just need to stay away from certain people, from certain places, from certain environments, certain TV channels. Whatever it is that is going to lead you into temptation, whatever it is that could lead you into sin, stay away from it, even if it means running in the opposite direction, if you have to. Whatever it takes. Don't compromise. Don't allow yourself that chance to just think about it or to ponder on it or just stay in that place a little bit longer than you should do. You need to be ruthless with temptation, just as Joseph was. No matter how appealing, no matter how harmless or innocuous or hidden or small it may appear. Now, my, I think my taste in music is pretty varied, actually. Uh, I like lots of different types of music, lots of different styles. There are some songs uh, that have become favourites of mine. I have no idea how I even heard them in the first place. Uh, there's one in particular that uh, we like in our house, and it was um, released in the 1960s by a guy named Al Wilson, and it's called The Snake. I don't know if anyone's familiar with the snake at all, but the snake tells a story. And it's a story about a lady, a very kind-hearted lady, who she's walking to work one morning, and she's walking down past the lake, and she sees a snake who's half-frozen, uh, not in good shape at all. Um, and, and in the chorus of the song is this snake who sing, who's talks to her. He'd always beware of talking snakes, right? Uh, and she says, and he just appeals to this woman, will you look after me, will you take me in? Look after me. And because she's a kind-hearted woman, she takes this snake home. He looks vulnerable, he looks fragile, he looks harmless. And she takes him home and she looks after him day after day. And she comes home after work uh, every day to check on how he's doing. And then one day she comes home and the snake has been revived. He's well, he's healthy. And she's thrilled. And what she does is she picks this snake up to give him a cuddle and the snake bites her. And she turns to the snake and she says, I've saved you and you've bitten me and you're poisonous and I'm going to die. And the snake, in the last verse, the snake says this. He says, oh, he says, shut up, silly woman, said the reptile with a grin. You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. That's how sin works. Sin can appear harmless, could appear that actually, that, that, you know, there's no harm at all. Maybe if I just allow it into my life a little bit, nothing too serious is going to come from that. But the reality is, is that sin is, uh, has an intention and it is not to do you good. We should not be surprised when we allow ourselves to linger on temptation, to just give it a foothold in our lives when all of a sudden it blows up much bigger than we thought. Because just as that snake said, actually, you knew exactly what I was when you took me in. Sin is exactly the same. If we entertain it and allow it into our lives and just think, oh, maybe I'll just touch on this a little bit, but I won't go too far. That is not how it works. Because actually sin will just turn around and say, do you know what, you knew exactly what I was when you let me into, into your life. You've got no excuse at all. Genesis 4, verse 6 to 7. Uh, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain and just hates his brother. Absolutely hates him. It gets this point in, in this passage in Genesis where he is just furious. And the Lord comes to him and the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. It's just the sense that sin is crouching at the door. It's waiting. It's stalking Cain. And its desire is for him. 
It's not harmless. It's not something to just be messed around with. Maybe just dip your toe in it and test it and see what it's like. No. Sin's desire is for you. You must rule over it, just as Joseph did. James 1, 14 to 15 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, which is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is what sin leads to. Because sin violates the relationship between us and God. That relationship uh, is, is damaged. It's violated. And it leads to separation between man and God. That's what sin does. It's not harmless. Its desire is for you. You have to rule over it because if you don't rule over it, it will only lead to one thing. And that is death. There's a, a quote. I'm not sure who, who said it. Uh, but it's sin will take you farther than you want to go. Keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. That is exactly how sin works. It will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Let's go back to our chocolate cake, just for one more time this morning. Psychologist, he observed this about the children. He said they don't care about doing wrong, but they do care about getting caught. Joseph's response to temptation... Joseph's understanding of sin clearly demonstrates his concern wasn't with getting caught. That's not what bothered him. His response to, to the invitations from Potiphar's wife, he didn't say, Do you know, it's, it's too risky. Oof, what if we get caught? Or I've got too much to lose. If he were to ever find out what I've done, I've got too much to lose. That is not even in Joseph's mind. He really cared about doing what was right. He really cared about doing what was right. He recognised Potiphar in his response. He says, actually, how can I do this? Potiphar, he's welcomed me into his home. He's got no concerns. He hasn't set himself up higher than me, but he's given me control over his household. And so Joseph recognised, actually, that there would be an impact on this man who had treated him so well that there would be consequences to his actions. And his integrity does not permit him to betray his master by committing adultery with this guy's wife. Sin affects others. Not always, but often it will affect others. It creates casualties. It brings hurt, betrayal, or destruction. But when Joseph, when he speaks about not betraying Potiphar, he actually ends with a really interesting point that he makes. He says this, so he talks about how Potiphar set him up in his household. He's not withheld anything from Joseph at all. And then Joseph finishes with this. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He doesn't say, how can I sin against Potiphar? He recognises the human element, that there will be consequences and there will be implications for Potiphar. But he says, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? It reminded me of Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is a response uh, of David, of King David. And King David, he uh, got another man's wife pregnant. And then to cover his tracks, he uh, got this guy involved in the front line of the battle so that he would be killed. Huge human consequence to his sin. But in Psalm 51, when Joseph is shown actually exactly what he has done, 
He says in verse 4, speaking about, about God, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. And you think about the human implication and the impact that his sin happened, and yet he recognises against God and God only has he sinned. While others may be involved or affected, sin is always, whether anyone else is involved, whether anyone else is around, whether anyone else even knows what has happened, sin, first and foremost, is an offence against God. Joseph wanted to do what was right because God's glory meant more to him than his pleasure or desire. It wasn't the consequences that he was thinking about. He wanted to do what was right because he didn't want to take the glory from God that he would have taken if he'd put his own desires first. There's a book by Francis Chan called Crazy Love, and I've mentioned it a few times uh, in my sermons. He said, he's talking about lukewarm Christians, so Christians who are neither really, really hot or, or really going for God, but those who haven't rejected him. They're kind of somewhere in the middle. They, they want a relationship with God, but not to the extent you know, where they really have to sacrifice too much or give too much up. He says about lukewarm Christians, he says they don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want only to be saved from the penalty of their sin. There's a huge distinction between those two things. A huge difference. Lukewarm Christians don't really want to be saved from their sin. They only want to be saved from the penalty or the consequence of their sin. And the penalty of sin, as we know, is death. It's separation from God. It's judgment from God. But this price is, is the price that was paid by Jesus on the cross. As he conquered sin and death, through his death and resurrection, sin was defeated. That penalty was paid, but sin itself was defeated. See, Romans 6, 11 to 12 says, So you must also consider yourself, so those who have put their faith in Christ, those who are followers of Christ, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in, God in Jesus Christ. Let no sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So Paul, when he's writing that, he's not saying actually be worried about the consequence of what your sin might have. Don't sin because, you know, we don't want the, the judgment of God on you. That's really not what he's saying. What he's saying is that sin should, not, should have no place or involvement in our lives whatsoever, regardless of what the consequences are, because you don't have to sin anymore. Because you're no longer a slave to sin. Sin shouldn't characterize your life anymore. Because you're not bound to it. Don't give yourself to sin, but give yourself to God instead. Now to me, Joseph, he seems to be a guy who wants to be saved from sin. And not just its penalty, not just the consequence. He doesn't want sin to have anything to do with him. That it should have no part in his life. I read a little while ago, maybe about a year or so ago. There's an article by a guy called Andrew Haslam, who's a leader of a, a church, I think in Wimbledon, or he was at the time he wrote it. And he wrote an article about self-pity. Really, really interesting. Now at this point, before I go any further, I just want us to think again about how Joseph may have felt. A long way from home, away from his family, promises that God has spoken to him, yet his life has taken this massive detour he was told by God that he was going to be in a position of authority that is he was going to have some sort of sense of power and responsibility over his family yet his family have betrayed him 
He's been sold into slavery. He's serving in someone else's home. How are his dreams? How are his how is his vision for his life going to play itself out? And how do we feel when our life seems to have taken a diversion or we're facing trials and difficulties? This isn't how I thought life was going to be. I find myself in a situation where this isn't what I would have chosen for myself. How do you feel in those places? Now the key points of the article were this. There's a need to stress that there's a difference between feeling sad or being sad and being self-pitying. There is a clear distinction between the two, which has to be made clear. But settling into self-pity will be, be evident from its fruit, from what it produces in your life. He suggests the following questions. He says, are you beginning to look for comforts outside of Jesus? Are you beginning to consider sin as a way of getting your joy? Are you doubting that God has your best interests at heart? That his will is good and acceptable and perfect? Goes on to say that when you're in a place of self-pity, you can, you can begin to feel like God is withholding good things from you. You can begin to feel a sense of entitlement, that you deserve more. And you can begin to look for comfort to touch your sorrow. You find avenues to escape that allow you to feel better, if only just for a little while. That's the danger that self-pity can lead you to. The reason I'm touching on this today might seem a bit of a, a strange route for me to have taken, but the reason why I'm touching on this is because I know in my life there's been times where self-pity has led me into sin. I know that. And I know how subtle it can be. I know how it feels to think, actually, I deserve more. That's how I felt at times in my life. No one else understands what I'm going through. This isn't what I've chosen for myself. I just need something just to make myself feel a little bit better, if only for a while. And I have times in my life where I've felt like that, and it has led me down some paths that I really shouldn't have gone down. That's why I'm sharing it, because for me, as I read this article, I thought, you know what, I know exactly how that feels. And I know just how subtly and subtle and easy it is to go down that route, but we need to be aware that self-pity can be a very dangerous route to take. Joseph, you think actually he could have been justified in giving in to temptation perhaps. How must he have felt? Absolutely betrayed, just in need of some comfort. Life, this isn't what I wanted for my life. I've got these dreams that God's given me, and now I find myself serving in someone else's home, 250 miles away from my family. Just a bit of comfort. Surely people would understand. He might have felt like that, but actually he was ruthless with it. He was like, actually, I'm not going to stand for that. But the antidote to self-pity that the writer suggests, the antidote to self-pity is gratitude to God. It's a conscious decision. It's not about emotion. It's not about how you feel on the day. It is a conscious decision to thank God for all he has done for you in Christ. Gratitude roots out unbelief that says that God is not good. <coughs> Gratitude challenges pride that says that I deserve more. Colossians 2 verse 6 to 7 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That is how to root yourself in Christ. 
and how to destroy the root of self-pity. It's thanksgiving and gratitude to God. But it's a conscious decision because you might not always feel like doing it. But it's a decision that we make. So Joseph, self-pity's not crept in at all. Even though it could have done. He's disciplined. He's consistent, constant. He's free of sin and not just the consequences of sin. He's kept himself completely from it. But in resisting temptation, in fleeing sin, Joseph finds himself being falsely accused. You have done that, you do the right thing and it still goes wrong. For Joseph, he's done exactly the right thing. He's resisted temptation, but he finds himself being falsely accused. And when Potiphar finds out, he throws him in prison. Joseph's life has taken another massive diversion. He's gone from being his father's favourite dreams that God has given him to being thrown in a pit by his brothers to then finding favour in the house of Potiphar, finding success to now being thrown in prison. He's gone from being the favourite to the pit to finding favour and now in prison. Just detour after detour coming against him. And actually for Joseph, none of it was really his own doing. He was diligent, serving well being self-disciplined, but yet his life's taken these diversions. We read again those five words that Mike read last week. The Lord was with Joseph. Even when his life's taken this other massive detour, the Lord was with Joseph. While Joseph's circumstances change, God is still with him. (coughs) Wherever Joseph goes, wherever he is put by other people, God is still with him. As our circumstances change, as your circumstances in life change, whether for better or for worse, God is still with you. Be assured of that. Be confident of that. Again, Mike last week uh, read Hebrews 13 verse 5. For all of us who are in Christ, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You, if you find yourself in a place where you're feeling alone, in a pit, not sure what's going on, you can read that verse in Hebrews with utter confidence. Because it is true for you. The Lord will never leave you, nor forsake you, no matter what people throw against you. The Lord is your helper, do not fear. Because there's nothing that man can do to you that will ever change the fact that God is with you always. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Steadfast love, love that's unfailing, unchanging, unswerving, sure, faithful, committed, devoted, reliable, true, dedicated. That's the love that God has for Joseph. (coughs) This is the same love that we declared. A few Sundays ago, if you were here from Psalm 136, when Ian was leading worship, and he read through Psalm 136, uh, and it's 26 verses that cover creation, God's rescue of his people, God's continued protection of his people. And after each line, it has the refrain, for his steadfast love endures forever. For 26 verses, and we went through that as a church. It does such the world of good. Just in all circumstances, throughout creation, God's love endures 
forever. As God was rescuing his people, his love endures forever. As he's continually protecting and providing for his people, God's love, steadfast love, endures forever. (coughs) Whether in the pit or in prison, in grief or despair, in fear or sickness, as low as circumstances may take us, Psalm 103 verse 11 says this to us. It says that for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. No matter how deep in despair you may feel, in circumstances that you just think, I can't get myself out of this. This isn't where I wanted to be. I'm not even sure how I got here. As deep as that is, God's steadfast love for those who fear him is as high as the heavens are above the earth. What a wonderful contrast. As deep as that despair may feel, God's love for you is as high as the heavens are above the earth. So we leave Joseph this morning, sitting in prison, but the Lord is with him. The Lord has shown him steadfast love and actually he finds favour and success just as he did in Potiphar's house. You actually look at the pattern and the wording that's used, it is so similar. The way that Joseph was handed responsibility, people handed it over to him and left things in his care without feeling the need to check up on him in Potiphar's house, that's exactly the same as what happens in the prison. He, he finds favour and success through God. Next week, Paul's going to take us on the next stage of Joseph's journey to the dungeons. That's our next title for the D's, to the dungeons. We're going to go there and, and see, go on the next kind of stage of Joseph's journey and see what an example he is to us as well. Shall we stand in the band if you can come back up? Just as you're getting ready, I'll just pray for us.